We return to bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis with our guest, Simon Elliott, as he discusses the corruption in Honduras between the coup of 2009 and the recent elections of just this past month. And you asked a question also just about corruption. And if I may, I'd like to just give a, a brief anecdote from, yeah, from my, from being in Honduras last two weeks ago now. So right in downtown Tegucigalpa, which is the capital of Honduras, there is on two of the main boulevards, right in the middle separating the traffic is what looks like a very newly built, nice public transit separated lanes that should just be for for buses. And when you ask more about it, or when I asked more about it, I was told that this is called the Trans 450 program, which was going to be a rapid transit bus system with its own dedicated lanes for buses, stations throughout the two main boulevards, etc. So construction started seven years ago on this project, and it is still not operating to the point where, in fact, they've actually started dismantling some of it because the money that was allotted, the loans that were taken out for this project have run out before the project got off the ground. So to me, it felt like a striking metaphor that right there in the downtown of the capital city on the main boulevard, there is this sort of monument to the corruption of the sitting government and the money that was going to some public good like public transportation in a city that needs it. It's now sitting unused. In fact, is, is getting parts of it are getting taken apart before it was ever in operation. Yeah, it's a great example. I just want to remind listeners that we are visiting with Simon Elliott. He wrote a piece uh, fairly recently on the November 27th, 2021, entitled Honduras to Hold Crucial Elections Amid Escalating Political Violence and Fears of Fraud, referring, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, to the election. But before we go there, the violence in this country is so off the map. And this is what we we see in all these countries in which there's such profound unfairness and People start organizing, and I know Hondurans are very well organized. And then the repression and all these different forms strikes, and you have these gangs, and you know you just create these environments through our covert and overt U.S. foreign policy influences that we then blame their problems on, but we somehow leave out our foreign policy effect of, of putting in these governments and these systems that are so profoundly unfair. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the Honduras rate of violence down there relative to the rest of, of the world and, and the poverty rates as well when you compare it to the Latin America and the Caribbean? Yeah, absolutely. So Honduras is one of the poorest countries in the region, and it is also one of the more violent countries in terms of homicide rate per 100,000 in the region. But in talking also about violence, I think it's really important to emphasize the violence that is carried out against, and I mentioned this earlier briefly, uh, against human rights defenders, Mm -hmm. against environmentalists, against protesters, against indigenous leaders Mm -hmm. um, in Mm -hmm. particular. There was, according to the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, They found that between 2014 and 2017 alone, there were 141 human rights defenders and activists uh, that were killed in Honduras and more than 13 attempted assassinations. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And then most, you know, there was also obviously the case of Berta Cáceres, um, the well-known and well-loved environmental activist, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware 
who was assassinated in 2016. And then, you know, less than two weeks later, another leader of her same group was also assassinated in, in a similar fashion. Um, so it's a very dangerous place to be an environmentalist. It's a dangerous place to be a human rights defender. Um, and we can talk more about danger of protesting as well um, as it comes to electoral results, perhaps when we start to talk about the 2017 election. But I hope uh, that it, helps paint a picture. It does. But I want to stay focused on what you're talking about. When you talk about environmentalist groups, these are not people with flowers in their hair. <laughs> these are people that are living in conditions that their land and their ability to subsist is getting polluted or just decimated on behalf of the interests of huge investment capital. Correct me if I'm wrong, but can you give some examples of like, for instance, Berta Caceres that you're mentioning, exactly what she was fighting against at that time that cost her her life and, and not just people, environmentalists and people just trying to seek land reform and those types of things. But also, I remember incredible repression against the gay and lesbian population and even news reporters and, you know, you dare report this. This is what repression looks like. These people that go out on the streets and demonstrate have incredible courage. I mean, they're basically putting their lives on the line, as you mentioned, hundreds have died in just a recent past or whatever. But can you elaborate a little bit more on the environmental types of issues that promote these opposition groups to get formed and to protest them? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the hunger and economy has to do with, like I mentioned earlier, this extractivism of, of, of natural resources, a lot of which is happening on territory that belongs to and has belonged to historically indigenous populations. So Berta Cáceres, in her assassination, she was a well-known leader who was protesting a hydroelectric dam on a river in, in rural Honduras. And then also, just in this last year, you know, this has continued to this day, there was the forced disappearance of four Garifuna activists last summer, um, and they were forcibly disappeared by men dressed in state security force uniforms, and the government has kind of uh, played dumb, uh, acting as though they had no role in it and, and don't know what could have happened. And that was the Garifuna, which is Afro-Indigenous community on the northern coast of Honduras. They were fighting encroachment from palm oil companies onto their land. So those are some examples. And then right now, actually, this week, there is going to trial eight water defenders of the Wapinol community. And so this is a, a very important issue. Um, people who have been detained for more than a year for defending the river in their community from an iron ore mine and subsequent development. So this is the, the sorts of things that if you're not assassinated, oftentimes in Honduras, you will, you'll have charges brought against you wrongfully, but nonetheless, you'll spend time in prison. So, Yeah, well, thank you for that very good presentation of that kind of repression. And it is so striking to me. If some people get arrested in Cuba for protesting, that's all over our news forever. And none of this is covered that you've been talking about. And it's so important. You know, there's no such thing as a lesser life. And very maddening to me that not only that it goes on, but that the public is not aware of it. Due to the media concentration ownership we have documented in other shows, ultimately, wealth inequality is what is responsible for this profoundly unfair news coverage that the American public 
has access to. The disproportionality of focusing on Cuba, where no one has died, and absolutely not even covering Honduras, where over a hundred have died, or just in the three-year period that our guest had just shared. When you combine this disproportionality in coverage with the misrepresentations often that our progressive media provide us, you can understand why the American public is so brainwashed into ignorance about U.S. foreign policy, impact, and effects. That is what is so maddening to me, but I digress. Let's turn to the election because your article is well put together and it covers a lot of different things. But this past month, in November 28th, on Sunday, there was a, it's an election. There was just a lot of conflict. People were not real optimistic that it wouldn't be a corrupted election because apparently there was one in 2017. Can you fill us in on that electoral background? Maybe start with the 2017 election and what happened there, and then also bring us up to date, not just about the results, but the many different things that were being voted on with respect to different electoral representatives throughout the country. Yeah, I appreciate the chance to bring in 2017 because I think it is very important to inform how we look at, at the results and the process of the election on the 28th. So in 2017, there was a highly contentious election, and it was between the current president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, and Salvador Nasrallah of the anti-corruption party. And throughout the process, there was political violence leading up to the day of the vote. And then in the aftermath, there was a lot of even international observers who were denouncing that there had been fraudulent activity in the 2017 elections. And the OAS, the Organization of American States, whose Reputation as an impartial observer has come under fire recently with how they behaved in in Bolivia in 2019. I'm not sure if you've covered that um, Mm -hmm. in any program. But they, the Secretary General of the OAS, went as far as to call for there to be new elections based on the, the high level of irregularities in the electoral process. The U.S., it's important to note the U.S.'s role in this, The U.S. did not follow that call of the OAS. The U.S. did not support that call and and went ahead and encouraging other countries in the region as well to recognize the results. The State Department did go ahead and and recognize the results, regardless of all the calls from other countries as well as the OAS for the elections to be redone. Um, So it's important to note this kind of stamp of approval that the State Department put on what many believe to have been a fraudulent election of Juan Orlando back in 2017. So then there were massive protests that were happening while the election counting process was going on. Over 30 people died in the repression of those protests that came from state security forces. And over, I think, 1,200 people were detained just in the matter of less than two months in the protests that were throughout Honduras in response to that fraud. So that's a little bit of context for 2021 from the last elections four years ago. And so the 2021 process, I think there was a lot of... And Simon, before you go on, I just want to remind our listeners that Simon was actually physically down there as an electoral monitor. Is that right? As an electoral observer, yes. Yeah, okay, thanks. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, and so I think the importance of why they recruited so many international observers, especially people that were not affiliated with the OAS or or the EU, is 
to make sure that this process was more transparent and was an exercise of, of genuine democracy, right? So I think what was important for me as an observer was there was the process to observe, obviously, the day of voting, but it felt very important, if not more important, also to observe the sort of conditions in the country in the days leading up to the elections, the day of, obviously, and then in the days afterwards. So one thing that is important to note is the level of political violence leading up to the elections was extreme. I believe at least 30 people were, 30 candidates and, and party activists, to be specific, were killed in the run-up to these elections over the last year or so. And one of them, actually, there was a mayoral candidate who was killed a few days before the election while I was there. But in spite of that, there was, I think, an overwhelming desire among you know, a large part of the Honduran population for transparent and peaceful elections. And I think, for the most part, the day of, mainly peaceful. And then I'll take a step back. So running um, on the presidential ticket this year was Fiomara Castro, who her husband was actually the president overthrown in 2009, Manuel Zelaya. And then she was running for the Libre Party and then running for the ruling party, the national party, Partido Nacional, was the mayor of uh, Tegucigalpa, who himself has been named as possibly corrupt or uh, involved in, in corrupt dealings. That's at Nazri Tito Esferro guy? Is that right? Is yes, exactly. So that's at the presidential level, but it was really mm-hmm. an amazingly involved election, right? Because they were not just electing a new president. There was a national congress and municipal elections. Can you just tell us all of the electoral bodies that were exercising elections during the election that you were monitoring or, or observing? Yeah, so these elections every four years in Honduras are of huge importance because actually my understanding is that every elected office, every elected position in the country is up for election every four years. There's no midterms. There are primaries, obviously party primaries, but every four years you have every mayor up for election, every seat of the Congress, 128 seats is up, and then presidential of course, as well. And then also the municipal seats like Alder people um, are also up for election every every four years. So it's of massive importance, especially with the all 128 seats of Congress up for grabs. Winning the presidency is obviously hugely important, um, but there's also been a lot of attention paid to the results of the congressional race as well. And, and I can go into that. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, so there was Ciumada Castro, who was of the Libre Party, a party that rose out of protests in the early teens, 2000 teens. And she was able to gather a very broad coalition, a very broad alliance in opposition to the ruling party. And that included the candidate who I mentioned earlier to, the t- to 2017, Salvador Nasrallah, He joined forces with Castro. So it was very interesting to see that the Libre Party, which is left of center, and then all the way to some elements of the ruling class in Honduras, kind of right-wing forces, also sort of joined this opposition. And because of how deeply unpopular and deeply corrupt the current 
administration has been. There was Gustavo Urias of CESPAD, which is the Center for Democracy Studies in Honduras, who helped organize the electoral observation mission I was on. He made an interesting comparison where he compared this election more to the plebiscite on Pinochet's dictatorship in 1988, I think the plebiscite was. Mm -hmm. Um, Rather than this being kind of a left-right election, this was more of an election about democracy versus dictatorship. And that's a sentiment that I saw expressed by a lot of people. A lot of people shared that as well. Um, And I think that her broad coalition that she brought with her to the polls demonstrates that as well. Let me ask you this, because we just have a few more minutes left. So what is your take on, if you have such a broad alliance, do you think that she will be able to exercise and make some sovereign choices there? Or is there going to be a lot of pressure to tamp that down by some of these alliances and some of the oppositional forces that surely remain and certainly the U.S. will be involved in? And the U.S., they certainly don't encourage the types of programs that were so successful in reversing all this poverty that her husband promoted. And it might be worth mentioning, her husband, when she, when he was elected to his credit, President Manuel Zelaya, he was kind of a moderate person. He kind of got radicalized by the reality of what people were doing and actually started doing some really very, very positive things. Does the environment allow that type of outcome, do you think? Or what, what do you see over the next year or so as far as trying to move forward as a country for Ms. Castro? Yeah, I think that that's the million-dollar question right now, <laughs> is how, uh, yeah, how her government will be able to, to handle governing. And I, I appreciate you also bringing the role that the U.S. plays into this discussion as well, because I think sitting where we are here in the United States, what we need to be sure of is we need to make sure that the Biden administration and the Lincoln State Department, that they do not play a role like the one that the Obama administration and the Clinton State Department played in the 2009 coup. Mm -hmm. If elements within Honduras, if they were to reach some sort of trying to depose her or trying to to topple the new government, to make sure that there's no signals coming from the State Department, coming from the Biden administration of, you know, a seal of approval, if you will. And your question to this sort of coalition and governing it, right now, her party does have the most seats, it looks like, based on the projections, as the congressional races are still a little bit murkier right now than they are at the presidential level, where she won by nearly 15%. Um, So it was really a sweeping victory. Mm. It's only a matter of seats. Libre is projected to have about 49 seats, as where the Partido Nacional about 44. Mm-hmm. I believe. So she will have to govern in coalition. I think that there is a lot of cautious optimism about her plan de gobierno, her, her platform. She has 30 actions that she um, has said that she wants to take within the first 100 days. And one of them includes a national constituent assembly to look at crafting a new constitution. Some of them have to do with you know, no new concessions for companies for hydroelectric plants and revoking some of the concessions already granted, increases to health and education spending, et cetera, some of the things that you touched on before. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be very interesting. And I, I think here in the U.S., we need to not just tune in to Honduras when there's elections every four years, but stay engaged in all that is happening and try to be a, a force for good and, and counterbalance the 
forces for for evil that exist in the U.S. foreign policy establishment. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the group that you work for, the Center for Economic Policy Research, is a wonderful resource to get the types of information that you're not going to get on NPR, as I started the show off with. And it's so important to get an informed idea and to hold. I try to avoid repeating myself, but on this show, for democracy, we need to hold our government accountable. And the only way to do that is to be informed. So let me ask you, with limited time that we have left, first, if people are interested to stay up and maintain an understanding of these issues and to become part of the forces to let people know that there are people in this country that will not sit idly by and allow some of these historical cycles to repeat themselves. What would you suggest if someone is really trying to get more informed as to accessing information and getting into a more active role? What would be your advice? Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. Like you mentioned, I work for the Center for Economic and Policy Research Over the years, researchers there have published wonderful research about Honduras, not just economic studies, but but also um, more investigative reports. All that can be found at CEPR.net if one is inclined to, to learn more and follow our work. Also, there are some bills that could use support that are right now in in the U.S. Congress. There is the Berta Cáceres Human Rights Act, which is in the House. It's got Uh, submitted again this year, which would suspend U.S. funding for police and military operations unless the Honduran government investigates and prosecutes latent human rights violations. Mm -hmm. And then there is the Honduras Human Rights and Anti-Corruption Act. There are versions in both the House and Senate, um, which also it has to do with not giving more security assistance to the police and military, which, as we've talked about tonight, we know to be abusive. Those bills, um, see where your representative is is on those. Um, and then I would also just, there's great work being done by a group called the Honduras Solidarity Network of North America. If you are looking to get involved through the Honduras Solidarity Network, I think that those, that's a great outlet, and they do fantastic work. Yeah, well, let's just end the show there with Simon Elliott. And just, again, Simon, thank you for a very informed discussion tonight. Also, I would recommend, I found very interesting, your article, Honduras to Hold Crucial Elections Amid Escalating Political Violence and Fears of Fraud, a November 27th piece that can be accessed at that Center for Economic Policy Research. Again, we've had the great pleasure of having Simon Elliott as our guest tonight. He's an international program intern at the Center for Economic Policy Research. He was down in Honduras during the few days leading up to the election at the end of November. And as you could tell from our discussion tonight, very well informed on Central and Latin American issues. So thank you for the education tonight, and we look forward to staying up with your work and give my best to Mark and Dan. Thank you so much, Pedro. I really appreciate this opportunity, and I appreciate what you're doing with your program. All right, brother. We'll talk soon. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety.
Psychology. 